Welcome to the More Than Books podcast. It would be episode 41 today. Wow. It's been going on for a while. If you are clearly noticing, uh, we have two new voices on the air today. I'm your host, Sierra Whitfield, and I'm joined by Emily Sutherland. And tell me, Emily, what do you do here at Bellevue University Library? So I am a circulation clerk. So if any of you guys listening call and you're needing to renew a book or ask about the hours, um, there's a chance that I'm the one who's saying hi. All right. So our topic for today is we are going to be looking at some historical figures, specifically women, who have made some interesting appearances in our pop culture recently. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, in honor of uh, Women Histories Month, which mm-hmm. is, you know, happening in March, unfortunately, this podcast will probably not be released until April, but we tried. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I definitely think that both, you know, both one of our favorite um, historical figures is definitely one who's really built up a very infamous reputation, not only in media, but in just our public consciousness at, mm-hmm. as a whole yeah and but yeah and sh- she's an enigma to, to say it lightly um, yeah she has just so many different personalities that it's not really until recently that we've really begun to really understand who she was as a person mm-hmm. and to differentiate who i guess french media especially you know at mm-hmm. the time of the french revolution made her out to be oh yeah propaganda was definitely not her best friend oh no and you know it definitely did not help that she came from you know she was not french in origin Mm -hmm. Uh, she actually was a austrian princess Mm -hmm. and if you haven't guessed who it is already yet um our first person that we're going to be talking about is marie antoinette she was uh i believe the 14th or 15th child of the empress of austria at the time she was treated as such because her marriage was purely political and the marriage if i may add um was essentially a you know political alliance to mm-hmm. bring peace between the two nations because before that they did not get along yeah they had a tentative alliance during the seven years war which they wanted to elongate which ended up not happening because the people really didn't like the fact that their queen was still talking to her family in Austria. Yeah. Um, And she had a very close relationship with her mother. Yep. Mm -hmm. And in fact, one of the funniest instances that I happened to, you know, read on was, um, it's well known that uh, Marie Antoinette and her French beau, if you want to call it that, (laughs) were not really able to you know, do their bedly duties for up to seven years after mm-hmm. they were married. And um, it only really happened because her mother sent strongly worded letter to her daughter telling her to get her act together. And she also sent Marie Antoinette's brother to go give advice to her husband. Yeah. <laughs> so that's definitely some, some baby fever going on there. For oh, sure. Yeah. But they did have a child about a year after that, so mm-hmm. it worked out. It did work out. Yep. <laughs> but uh, Marie Antoinette was, you know, most widely known even uh, until today for her very opulent lifestyle. Though that there is some facts to support that, but 
there are also, you know, other facts that definitely dispute that. Yeah, despite the fact that she built a model farm on the palace grounds so that her and her ladies-in-waitings could just dress up in costumes and pretend to be farmers and milkmaids and shepherdesses, she was well known for giving regularly to charity and for Mm -hmm. being very kind to those that met her. She also had a deep fondness for children and would Mm -hmm. often um, adopt children of servants or, you know, just citizens whose um, parents had passed. And uh, that also reflected a lot with her children as well. She very much doted on them. What's interesting is that her opulent lifestyle initially was what gave her favor with the people when she first came they loved Mm -hmm. her fashion they loved her dresses and what's interesting to know is that back then like the royal family was more so entertainment for the common folk than it even is today with what you see with like the british monarchy in today's media i mean people were constantly knowing what was going on in the palace and gossip was everything Mm -hmm. interesting that her lifestyle was then very quickly almost turned against her and used as almost a reason for the french revolution to start but yeah people do get angry and desperate when they are put in strange situations especially when such situations you know um threaten their livelihood. Mm -hmm. It's also interesting that the propaganda really didn't start taking off until her relationship with her known lover at the time, when that started to be included in those pamphlets that were being handed out, that's really when it started to gain traction because it was easier to say that this Austrian was betraying the country because she was betraying her husband. Though a fun fact, I guess, about her lifestyle, she was much more free with her money in her younger days than Mm -hmm. she was in her later days. Just mainly just follies of youth. I believe there was a time where um, it was for I think she was a, a young adult, uh, mm-hmm. eighteen, nineteen, twenty, where she would she had you know gambled a bunch of money mm-hmm. for just days on end, and her mother also sent her another strongly worded letter about <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely interesting. The biggest thing that I find fascinating is that all of this kind of culminated in the one phrase that everyone knows today. Everyone thinks she said, "Let them eat cake." in response to, you know, people being unable to afford bread. What's fascinating about this is that it is documented and proven that the first person to have likely said it was a Spanish princess in 1660, Mm -hmm. who did marry into the French monarchy. But it's also in a novel by Rousseau that was a commentary on uh, politics at the time, And that was actually written when uh, Marie Antoinette was only 11 years old. So there is actually published proof that she was not at least the first person to say it. And the phrase, let them eat cake, is just a mistranslation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, brioche is the word that's used in the French, and that just means an egg-based dough. It was more expensive, so it would have been something that the common folk may have not had access to. but. It's not actual cake. 
it's just a, a, a richer egg-based bread. Mm -hmm. And um, as we, you know, um, get a little bit further in history, more towards mm -hmm. her untimely demise, she actually sort of forsake uh, a lot of her, you know, just the royal lifestyle in attempts to appease the French common folk. One such, I guess, incident was when she would you know, start to wear more plain clothing mm -hmm. so that the French folk would, you know, sort of see them as being, you know, on the same level. But mm -hmm. that style of clothing actually took an ironic turn and was used as a popular French woman's clothing in the French Revolution. Another interesting thing about her later years is that King Louis the Sixteenth, he really tended to freeze when big issues came up, like in 1789 when 900 French workers stormed the palace. He kind of froze. He didn't really know what to do, and it is... It's been proven that Marie Antoinette actually used some of the schooling that she had when she was a child and some of the things she had learned about politics while there, and she kind of took the reins in trying to get all the ambassadors together and trying to establish basically a task force to deal with the issue. And she was actually the one who, the help of her lover, actually came up with the plan for them to try and escape Paris right before they were captured for the last time. It does show that she was definitely a woman who, if the cards had not been so stacked against her, probably could have found a way to fight her way out of it. Yeah. She was, you know, a very strong woman and multifaceted, to say the least. Which leads us to examine, you know, how she's really portrayed now in pop culture. Yes. And a lot of times she is portrayed as being almost like a ditzy, airheaded, vain and bubbly. Yep. Yeah. And it is documented that she really wasn't like that. She had a very rich lifestyle. She spent a lot of money, which was commonplace at the time. Especially for uh, royal families. Yep. It, it was, was almost expected of them. Oh yeah. It was almost outright like shame on your family if you showed up to a party in a dress you'd already worn before mm -hmm. so the fact that she is often portrayed as just kind of this aloof person really doesn't speak to her character at all especially mm -hmm. since she was the one who basically was like okay we need to do something about this situation and as you know um that sort of characterization, of course, mm -hmm. uh, can be seen most popularly in uh, Sofia Coppola's uh, 2006 film, Mary Antoinette. Yes. One thing, though, that they did do nicely about it is they did show a little bit of her ability to act kindly towards people, especially mm -hmm. children. They did portray that very well in the film. And they did mention some of her charitable acts, which was good because not a whole lot of uh, portrayals of her in pop culture had done that before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely showed sort of a softer side, um, you know, to her character. Oh, yeah. And something that I thought was very interesting about the movie itself is that they did film in Versailles, which is 
amazing because the place is gorgeous and it's where all this took place. So they actually got permission to shoot inside. And they kept their gear in Marie Antoinette's bedroom, which I think is hilarious. Yes. (laughs) Um, I, I think it would have been cool if, like, maybe that had been more of, like, you know, Sophia Coppola's, like, actual dressing room, but, like, the gear itself, I mean, it was, it was just the fact they were able to keep their stuff on the premise, because that's not usually done when people film at Versailles or other marks, landmarks in a lot of uh, countries that are, you know, near and dear to people's hearts. Yeah, usually they're very, you know, focused on trying to keep, I guess, the rooms or the, you know, artifacts in them just preserved and in mm-hmm. as, like, close to pristine condition as possible. Yep. One of the things that I really, um, that stuck out to me in the film was the way that, you know, Sofia Coppola modernized the story and mm-hmm. Marie Antoinette as well. Again, uh, if you if you have seen the film... Kirsten Dunst just speaks in an American accent, but everyone around else around her is, you know, speaking in a, I believe it's French accent. Mm-hmm. I don't know. In some in some movies, like if they're in France, they're speaking with a British accent, and I don't know why they do that. Yeah, it's <laughs> mainly because um, it can be very hard to mimic that French yeah. accent without going into the comedy um, area. And also, the last thing you want to do is offend your hosts. So, yeah. (laughs) That's one reason people do that. I do like the fact that she's speaking in a completely different accent than everyone else around her. Because I feel, I feel with just what I have seen of the film, um, it speaks to the fact that she was an outsider. Mm -hmm. She was from another country. Yeah. And so, really just was such an important part of her character that people focused on. So that really was, I think, a very tasteful move on their part. Yes. And then the reuse of some things. There's a blue and gold robe that... Shirley Henderson wears when she's playing Aunt Sophie. That was actually used um, for the movie The Aristocrats in 1999. Geraldine Somerville wore it as Lady Emily. And the same gown was also featured in my favorite episode of Doctor Who, The Girl in the Fireplace. It's interesting that they chose to reuse that gown it hasn't been used for the same person that's being portrayed twice but it has been used in a setting for Versailles and Paris almost constantly so I do think that's definitely interesting that they chose to use that dress and what is the context of the robe within that particular episode of Doctor Who um so it is worn by um, Madame Pompadour. She is wearing it, I believe it is at the very end when they're fighting all of the robots um, that are trying to harvest her, I want to say it's a brain or heart, um, to repair a spaceship. And so it is the dress that she is wearing when she kisses David Tennant, which is 
definitely like the highest part of that episode for sure. That would be the highest part of my life. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it is, it is worn by the actual, um, main character besides the doctor in that episode. And I think, um, well, I guess one of the greatest scandals that are, that is associated <laughs> with uh, Marie Antoinette is that of the diamond necklace. Oh, yes. And you know, it's very interesting that even though it's so well known, even till this day, like, we don't see it that often in media. I think it's because it's something that's hard to portray and make it believable. Because it's so outlandish. Yes. <laughs> so if you don't know about the diamond necklace affair, um, this was a huge scandal that was used against Marie Antoinette that she had nothing to do with. The only thing that um, had any um, tie back to her person was that the thief who stole this extravagant diamond necklace dressed up as her. Mm-hmm. And even though it was proven that it wasn't her, um, the common folk still blamed her and said it was her fault. Um, so it is interesting because that is one of the few times where they aren't citing her opulent lifestyle or her heritage against her. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely, I think it's just because I don't think in this day and age anyone would believe that that actually occurred because the thief who stole the necklace was not well off they probably had access to rags or to something that had been cast off and um so being able to accurately portray in media this this commoner going into the palace stealing a necklace and successfully selling it to britain it just makes no sense why would marie antoinette who's the queen of france at this point who's rich need to even do that in the first place exactly (laughs) um so i definitely i feel like that's it's definitely something that i would love to see someone try and do seriously in media but if they can't do it seriously i would love an snl sketch about it i would honestly want a sherlock episode about it (laughs) yes (laughs) yes another woman who also has left a you know, interesting streak in both American and also um, British history would be Pocahontas. Yes, although Pocahontas wasn't even her real name. It was not. No, her a real name was, and if for some reason I pronounce this wrong, please let me know, Amanut Matoaka, and then Pocahontas was actually her nickname. And it was pretty common name as well. Yes, it was. It was. There's talk that she hers might have been a little bit more special because she was the chief's daughter, mm-hmm. so it might have had a little bit more of a formal tone to it. But it did mean playful one or ill-behaved child, <laughs> which I find so fascinating because this is someone who is credited with the success of the colonization of America and with establishing some of the first Anglo-Native um, American relations. relations. So, Even though she may not have had a lot of choice in the matter. Yep. But we'll get to that later. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely think that 
you know, the one aspect, you know, the one aspect to her story that's most well known, mm-hmm. especially in film and media, is her relationship with the colonist John Smith. Which is hilarious because it has been proven through speaking with people who were part of her tribe, her descendants, and also through our own documentations throughout history, John Smith's journal, historical records about... Which he published. Yes, he did. Which is great. So it's out there. People (laughs) can read it and see that... There really was no romantic feelings going on almost at all. Pocahontas actually saw him more as a father figure or as like an uncle. She is actually documented when she meets him again in Britain after thinking he's been dead. She calls him father. So the fact that everyone focuses on this romance that was never there is strange and it's interesting to see how that came about didn't he write something about it or sort of allude to it the thing is is that with the writing style of that day it's hard to say if he was alluding to something or if it was just how the words were commonly used they Mm. now sound like it very um But there is a lot of entries in his journal regarding her teaching him how to speak in their language. And in return, he was teaching her as well. There are times where it's stated they were like sitting by the river and just swapping little silly sentences So there is a chance that that did occur. The one place where people believe there is some romance is when his head is put on those stones and it looks like it seems like he's going to be executed, which is very dramatically portrayed in the Disney film um, Mm -hmm. towards the end there. And she just jumps out and saves him. Yes. It's interesting because with the loss of a lot of their historical and cultural records, there's no way to definitively say that that wasn't part of a ceremony or that they really were going to kill him or even that he may have made it up entirely. There are some circles in the archival world where they do believe that there is a high chance that he made that entire thing up especially because in his journal he never writes about it the same way twice. So it's it's definitely interesting. It's it's great for media. It's a great scene. Um I feel like the romance aspect is probably introduced because it is easy to see it that way when you're reading his journal. Yeah. And also that it's the easiest way to explain it to the common audience. Even though she was like 11 or 12 years old. <laughs> yes, that is another key When that fact. happened. Yeah. She was only 11 or 12 when she first met um, John Smith. Hence, most likely why she refers to him as father. Yes. Yes. And in regard to her romantic life, she did actually... She married another John. Yes. 
it's interesting that the two men in her life were both named John, um, except for there was a member of her tribe that she married first in about 1610, I believe, is when it is documented that she married him. But in terms of the people that she is associated with, in terms of Anglo relations, her second husband was John Rolfe, who was a tobacco tradesman. And so it's interesting how they <laughs> how they met because when there was some fighting between her tribe and the settlements um, at Jamestown, a captain, Samuel Argyll, actually kidnapped her and kept her in captivity on the ship. After about a couple months to about a year, they estimate, she ended up at a monastery where she was taught English, she was taught about Christian views, and she actually baptized and was renamed Rebecca while she was there. But she also met John Rolfe, and they ended up getting married. What's interesting about that is her father, as the chief of the tribe, he did bless the marriage before it happened. What um, happened, may I ask, to her first husband? They highly suspect that he either died or they got divorced, which was something that could happen in her culture during the time that she was being held prisoner. So they're they're not 100% sure what happened to him. There's not a whole lot of records in regards to that. But in her culture, it was acceptable to divorce. So a lot of people just kind of assume that he either died in the fighting or that they just separated. Yeah. Yeah. So, and uh, she actually, she married John Rolfe in 1614. And about yeah. a year later, they had yeah. a son. And then soon after, she unfortunately passed away. Yes. They, uh, they took a couple trips from the colonies to Britain. And on one of their return trips, she got sick and she didn't make it off the ship alive. What's interesting, though, about all of their trips back and forth is a lot of people assume that she got married in Britain. There is actual artistic renderings proving otherwise, that they actually got married in the colonies. So, um, yeah, just it's very interesting how the facts really don't match the media. Yeah. Especially when it comes to, you know, two of, you know, the most iconic portrayals of her story, which include 1995's, probably the most well-known, uh, Disney's Pocahontas. Mm -hmm. And about 10 years later, um, there was another film call that came out um, called The New World. Not as well-known, but it was critically acclaimed globally. Mm -hmm. Yep, and both of them failed to accurately even portray not just her name, but they failed to portray just anything about her marital status, her children, anything to do really with her family. Though I will add, uh, The New World, when they were developing uh, that film, it actually was made in conjunction with her tribe. And so it, it is a bit more accurate to her actual legacy but unfortunately it does bring in the romanticization of her relationship with john smith mm -hmm. 
despite Disney's known history with the inability to politely or accurately portray um, other cultures at that time, um, especially with um, another film of Mulan, mm -hmm. they actually did use real terms from her language. They did not get an accurate pronunciation for most of them, but they are real words and phrases, which is nice. They also did hire several Native American voice actors for that film. However, I will say my, my favorite voice actor in that film is Mel Gibson. It is actually the first film you actually hear him singing in. I do enjoy that. The fact that Disney tried, especially in an era where they weren't really trying, mm -hmm. speaks to just how important of a figure Pocahontas was. And the thing is, a lot of people need to keep in mind is that, yes, it's important to be historically accurate, but you also have to, you know, make the movie in a way that it's, you know, palatable to audiences. Mm -hmm. And, you know, incorporating that romantic element into that relationship, especially in a Disney film, mm -hmm. it definitely fits their image. That and also, um, I think the reason, again, that they don't focus on her actual husband is that... John Smith is so much easier to find stuff out about. He was more well-known. The fact that he published that journal. There's more to know about yes. their actual interactions. Though, to be fair, Disney did also try to bring in John Ralph with the straight-to-video <laughs> sequel that no one likes to talk about. Yes, which is why we're talking about it. <laughs> What's interesting about that sequel is that she did meet the king at the time mm -hmm. in real life. That painting is real. And I do love the fact that in the painting, she has a yellow dress when she does so. In the sequel film, she also has that yellow dress. The interesting thing about the sequel is that it doesn't quite portray as well as I would like mm -hmm. the amount of fascination that happened with her being there. People were wanting to see her, wanting to interact with her. She was something new. And she really, the thing about Pocahontas was she was an amazing activist for her people. She really was at the forefront of relations between her tribe and other Native Americans and these unknown settlers and their monarchy. And she was very proficient at English by the time that she got there. She actually, to most people's knowledge, did not speak anything except for English the entire time she was there. She could not only speak well, but she could carry herself in a manner. And that's all because she was the designated translator and activist while she was in the States or in Britain. So she was the face of her people, and mm -hmm. she really did a fantastic job with that. So I wish the film had shown that a little bit better. I will admit some of the slapstick comedy of trying to put her in a corset was great. <laughs> Probably one of my favorite scenes in the movie. But yeah, it is, it is definitely interesting just how much she was able to bridge that gap in such a short period of time. Yeah, that's actually one of the things that the 
sequel, the Disney sequel, actually did better than um, The New World. Unfortunately, in The New World, when she is brought over to England for the first time, she's more so kind of shown off as sort of an exotic side piece. Mm -hmm. More of the conflict is put on the sort of love triangle that sort of forms mm -hmm. with John Rolfe and, you know, John Smith, who mm -hmm. turns up. Though she does choose yeah. Rolfe in the end, more emphasis is placed on that conflict. Yeah, and the thing is, is it was definitely, even in real life, a very dramatic moment because up until that point, she thought John Smith was dead. It is documented mm -hmm. that her and her father were told that he was dead. So when she first meets him and calls him father, she's meeting him not knowing that he's alive. And what's also interesting is that it is stated that she um, then went on to chastise him for the treatment of her people. Spokesperson. So, <laughs> yep. <laughs> she was always, always being mindful of um, how she could try and better the situation. And speaking of, you know, advocates and mm -hmm. people, another, you know, really amazing woman, especially in uh, United States, American history is Coretta Scott King. Yes. Coretta Scott King, for anyone who doesn't know, um, was Martin Luther King Jr.'s wife, and she was as much of an activist, if not more so, than he was. Yeah, she was more involved in political and, you know, activist circles even before Martin Luther King Jr. even, you know, stepped his foot into that. Mm-hmm. Once she got into college, uh, she ended up joining uh, several um, clubs and organizations to help further the civil rights movement. And this really stemmed from uh, growing up, essentially growing up in the South and, you know, being the victim of a lot of violence in her youth. Yes. What's interesting is she was an active participant in the Montgomery bus boycott, which a lot of people tend to gloss over because that is Rosa Parks' territory, yeah. um, who is another great figure of history. And she also was working for equality until her recent death because she was part of the Vietnam War effort trying to talk peace and to try and end the violence there. She also was very outspoken against apartheid in South Africa. And she had to fight to get a lot of those days on the calendar, like Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and to get his foundation recognized. And she was in charge of that. She's the founder and president. Yes. Which is amazing because in the time that they founded, or she founded, that organization, it was not common for a woman to be a president of an organization. Also something that I'll just get glossed over is that she is a key advocate in um, LGBTQ plus rights mm -hmm. in America, and especially within Christian circles as well. Yep. She uses the tools that she was given to her best advantage. Because moving in some of these circles, especially with LGBTQ rights, getting into that 
Christian area and being able to talk about it and being able to make a difference can be very difficult, especially as a woman, you know, in that time, because a lot of the Christian leaders were men. Yes. The fact that she not once was documented as trying to do it through her husband Mm -hmm. is amazing. She was also very strong-minded and very stubborn when it came to these matters. She worked her whole life as a public mediator and a liaison with all of her organizations. And the thing is, with those roles, that is not an easy role to have in these organizations because you are trying to convince others. You are fighting with people who are yelling at you and degrading you constantly. And yet you'd be hard pressed to find a photo where she's not smiling or she's not just radiating power. So she definitely is one of the stronger figures in our history. Uh, She's had definitely quite a few uh, important media portrayals, especially Mm -hmm. uh, in Boycott Bill in 2001 and Selma 2014 and also the King miniseries as well. Yes. And what's interesting about the film Boycott and the film Selma is that the lead actress for that and the lead actor, they actually did get married after the filming of Boycott. They did get divorced sometime later, but I think it's interesting that the two people who portrayed them also ended up falling in love. Yeah, And I feel like that's a testament to the love that they had for each other um, that was being shown on screen. After uh, Martin Luther King's um, untimely passing, uh, she actually took up a lot of, took his Mm -hmm. position at uh, many rallies. And, you know, as she would state in several interviews later, uh, she would say that it was the first time that she felt that people actually saw her for her. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is, again, it's something that she was ahead of her time with because Mm -hmm. back then women weren't really seen as anything besides what they were to their fathers or their husbands. Um, So the fact that she was able to carry on that mantle and that legacy and make it into her own is amazing. In fact, uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy would not be as well-beloved as it is today without her efforts. Yes, she was from the get-go lobbying Mm -hmm. to do something to remember him and to remember what he did, Mm -hmm. um, which is why the foundation was founded so quickly, despite all the turmoil that was still going on um, during the time. And the fact that she was able to get... I believe it was Reagan was the one who signed off on MLK Day is just astounding. And so, you know, here's to our hopes that uh, we get more media that's really puts her in the spotlight Mm -hmm. in the future. Yes. Yes. And now for, you know, I know is one of your favorite topics. (laughs) Yes. So my favorite um, historical figure is Queen Victoria. She has been in so much media that you could just toss a stone somewhere into the past realm. And she's in it. She's in that genre. She's in that show. She's in that decade. She's Um, mentioned. Yes. 
She has been featured on Monty Python, SNL, in skits. She has been in, and this is my favorite part, she has been featured in an episode of Doctor Who, but then one of the lead actresses of Doctor Who now plays Queen Victoria in the currently running PBS show, um, and Jenna Coleman does a really fantastic job with that. She does. Indeed. Yes. But she is incredibly important to British history. She has yes. an era, an integral era of you know, the, their history named after her, the Victorian era. Yes. And what's interesting is that, again, Victoria was not her first name. Her first name was Alexandrina. Her background is English and German. And so she actually... Her family nickname for her was, I believe, either Dreeny or Drina. Mm-hmm. And when she became queen, one of her first stern words she had with her family was, you cannot call me this. That's kind of cool. But yeah, her uh, name, Victoria, is actually her uh, middle name. And so it's kind of interesting that she chose not to be um, known by her first name. As of today, uh, she has had the second longest running relationship that only recently got squashed by Queen Elizabeth II. II. Yes, that was squashed in 2015. That is how recent that was. She was one of the very first queens in an age where Parliament had more of a say in the going-ons of the country's management and funding and whether or not they went to war. And, you know, over the period of time that she ruled, she had less and less powers. Yes. Like, more was taken away from her. Yes. But the fact that she was successfully able to maintain the majority of her power and to be such a great influence to even the modern era, you can still see some of that influence. She's um, highly responsible for um, creating the British Empire, for Mm -hmm. expanding their territories into many different countries. Mm -hmm. She was actually, I believe, the first empress of India. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is that her relationship in terms of trying to learn about the people that she was ruling was there's actually an entire film about her relationship with... She had an attendant from India named Abdul Karim. And he taught her how to speak uh, Hindustani, I believe is how you say that. Mm -hmm. And she wanted to be able to interact and learn about the people that she was representing. A lot of people think that she was this very stern, no-nonsense ruler, which she wasn't. Someone who could easily just be, like, toppled over or pushed around. Which is really funny, because she was less than five feet. Yes, she was actually (laughs) only four foot eight. Very small. She was also kind and caring in her own way. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is a lot of her manner has to do with how she was raised. Her mother knew that there was a decent chance she was going to be getting the throne, which is interesting, because when she was born, she was only fifth in line. Mm -hmm. But her mother had her raised under a specific type of, I almost want to say child management at this point with how strict it was. It's called the Kensington system. And so from the day that she was born, she had someone supervising her around the clock. If it wasn't her mother who she shared a bedroom with until she became queen, 
it was a servant or a tutor or an attendant. And actually one of her tutors became one of her greatest advisors and a powerful man in parliament when she became queen. The same could not be said for her mother because she did have a very tenuous relationship with her. And eventually once she stepped into becoming queen, she actually exiled her. (laughs) Yes, yes, she did. And I think that is because she never had a moment alone. It is documented that the first thing she did when she found out she was queen was she requested an hour alone. And it was the first time she'd ever been alone in her life. Can you imagine just since the day you were born, you've never been alone, not for one second in your life. And that speaks to how she developed her mannerisms and her strong sense of morals that she had because She never really interacted with other children. The majority of the time she was being taught the laws of the land and about treaties, but also she was specifically taught about morals. One of the reasons that she was not able to always come off as this loving person Mm -hmm. um, to the masses, but she did have her own ways of doing that. Um... But the, definitely the one area of life where she was incredibly loving loving was with her husband, Prince Albert. Yes. People are still trying to authenticate this, but at the moment, most people think it is probably accurate. But Prince Albert actually was um, in declining health for a very long time, mm-hmm. for the majority of his life. And um, she has described it as his inability to basically just get up and do something um that he was uh you know play acting uh quite a bit some people have started to say that she's one of the first people to um have described man laziness men being lazy <laughs> um forget the term specifically for that it's just interesting that she basically was calling him lazy overplaying how sick he actually was i think that definitely speaks to their relationship a little bit Mm -hmm. and even with their kids she was a doting mother she loved all of her kids she interacted with them i love the fact that one of the reasons we have christmas trees in our houses and this is credited to them it is officially credited to them that the reason we have christmas trees as a main decoration especially even in like the royal palace now is because her and her family were uh captured doing that Um, And they actually, like, Prince Albert and Queen Victoria would go and they would get the tree. They'd bring it in. And their family would be the ones to be putting up the decorations. They did not have the servants doing them for that. It just speaks volumes of how much she cared for her family and she valued creating lasting moments and memories with them. Yeah. She, however, was also the first carrier of yes the royal disease the royal disease i believe it's uh sickle cell disease Um, yeah it's a it's a blood disease yeah you know if you have a cut like you can just lose blood pretty quickly she was one of the first known carriers and because she had so many children and so many grandchildren who married who married into other um noble houses of in different countries they actually credited her with being kind of like the main focal point before the spread 
Um, so the start of that royal disease, mm-hmm. which is interesting because she is related to the Romanov family. And that is where it is first documented as being something that that royal family struggled with. And she actually had, I believe, she either had a son or she had a nephew or... I believe it was one of her grandchildren. Yes, who actually ended up dying because they got um, stabbed and they just bled out. I also love the fact that her face was the first face on the first adhesive stamp, which was actually called the Penny Black. And it's interesting because a lot of people back in the day thought that your image held power mm-hmm. and that people could control you or aspects of you if they had your image. And so the fact that she let her image be mailed everywhere in the world um, and used by the common folk is definitely interesting, especially because after Pris Albert's death, she was known to partake in some supernatural practices. She insisted his clothing be laid out as well as a warm bowl of water for him to shave every day until she died. I believe she had some seances um, as well. And what's interesting is that actually ties into her media portrayal in Doctor Who because in that episode, they're in this mansion that belongs to the queen um she drives by unexpectedly they end up trapped in there and it has to do with werewolves (laughs) so um how do werewolves fit into that they were technically aliens but um that's always the answer with doctor who it is Um, yeah that makes sense but it has to do it's interesting because they kind of also say that it's part of that royal disease as well Mm. and so there's actually a point at the end of the episode where rose tyler is like so the monarchy werewolves yes no and the doctor doesn't really say yes or no he he Uh, takes no stance on this he takes no stance on it one of the interesting things about the disease however is that female carriers of the disease don't really show symptoms and it's more prominent in the male Mm -hmm. carriers yes and that was another thing that was mentioned as well with the whole werewolves was only the males were getting it so it was Definitely, there were a lot of, like, hats off to some of the more interesting aspects. Mm -hmm. Because if any monarch believed in werewolves, it was probably Queen Victoria. Just with everything that she was believing in toward the end. And as you mentioned, Sierra, towards the end, she was losing more and more of her power. And some of that was attributed to her belief in the supernatural. Mm -hmm. Because people were kind of saying she was crazy. So. And also, you know, it didn't really help that she was kind of in a more of a depressive mood after mm-hmm. her husband passed. Yes, she even had a certain state of dress, which is what most people are familiar um, with, is the black dresses and always having a shawl um, or a head covering. Just very almost Puritan attire. What's really funny about that is... The fact that earlier in her life, when she got married, she was the start of the white dress. So the fact that she went to a complete 180 of that at the end of her life is just very interesting. And she's just such an intricate woman, but she was a powerhouse. She 
was one of she was the first queen to ride a train and she said she enjoyed it so that really helped to build the train industry which in omaha we do have a big tie to that with union pacific so we can kind of thank queen victoria a little bit for that but she really she loved learning new things she was quite fond of languages yes as you were speaking with um abdul karim abdul karim yes she loved languages and actually it's interesting that one of the hardest scenes for jenna coleman to film on the pbs show had to do with language she said that it was harder to sing german than it was to ride side saddle and that is saying something yes wow (laughs) especially with all of those petticoats So the fact that Queen Victoria loved language is just amazing. And she had to. Under her rule, Britain had the most colonies in other countries. So she had to know how to speak these languages because if you were going to rule, you needed to be able to communicate with the people. That was something that she very much believed in. And so it's a testament to her character that she wanted to make sure that her people knew that she was there. Yeah. And that she respected the people that she was ruling enough to learn their language and also their customs. Yes. And she didn't really push too many customs on people, which is interesting because during that age was when you had a lot of countries practicing forced assimilation. Definitely one of my favorites. Um, another interesting thing about Queen Victoria and the media is that there have been a lot of film portrayals of her in different stages of her life. Mm-hmm. You've got Young Victoria starring Emily Blunt. That was just about her early years. Then you have Victoria and Abdul, which is about later in life. When, when she, she was portrayed by Judy Dench. Yes. Um, Her whole life supposedly is going to be covered in the PBS show, and it's not just Queen Victoria's life, though, at this point that's being portrayed. A fun fact is that the dog who plays Dash, who is Queen Victoria's beloved dog, the real dog's name is Tori, and she actually was first in Young Victoria as a puppy, starring Emily Blunt, and Aww. now she is continuing her role in the PBS Masterwork series. And I think that is just adorable. I also think it is an interesting kind of tie-in. And the fun thing about that dog is that when Queen Victoria first moved into Buckingham Palace, her mom would not let her take the dog And so eventually she did get her dog in the palace. So I I like the fact that they are loving the dog just as much as Queen Victoria would have, Mm -hmm. who is playing um, this adorable fuzzball. And speaking of Buckingham Palace, she was the first um, British monarch to actually live there. Yes. So all the other castles were holiday castles. Um, One of the favorites was Windsor Castle. but yes, yeah, she was the first monarch to just take up residence there, which I 
think is amazing because London was growing and expanding and becoming not so safe of a place for people to be residing in. And actually, she had several attempts on her life right outside the palace throughout her entire reign, including one where a guy hit her over the head with a cane. I don't know how that's counted, but it is counted as an attempt. But she never once had any of the people executed. They were either exiled for a couple years or they were thrown in a prison, but they were never executed. Which yeah, which definitely garnered her some really positive public um, public perception. Yes. So yeah, definitely an interesting person. I will say that when it comes to portrayals of Queen Victoria, the majority of them, excluding Doctor Who, because that one is fantasy in and of itself, are very accurate, which, as we've seen, is not necessarily the case. Yeah, with a lot of other figures. Oh, yeah. But I, I definitely do attribute that to, you know, her having such a wide influence and a lot of her life having been documented quite mm-hmm. well. Yep. And now um, I believe it's on to one of the people you really wanted to talk about. Yes, one of, you know, just the most intriguing women in history, especially art history, Frida Kahlo. Actually, uh, a really good um, tie-in, actually, with uh, Queen Victoria. Um, Frida Kahlo was of two nationalities. She was half Mexican and Mm -hmm. also half German as well. Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. Her father, I believe, was a uh, Jewish immigrant, I believe. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was born uh, July 6th, 1907, but uh, she often shaves, you know, three years off and switches the date to 1910, which was the date associated with the Mexican Revolution. She was um, deeply passionate about Mexican tradition and culture, Mm -hmm. and a lot of that definitely reflected itself in her traditional style of dress as well as in her art. Yes, and you can see a lot of it in her self-portraits, which are the majority of her work. Mm -hmm. She is wearing traditional folk clothing. She has traditional folk jewelry. She uses a lot of the colors that are very present in those things. And she also was an activist. She was very vocal about Mexican rights and people's rights to basically just be individuals. Mm -hmm. She definitely was wanting to portray that. What most people don't know is before she got into the car accident that really um, not only changed her life or the way that she functions in life, but... um, also, the car accident, that really helped to garner a lot of inspiration for a lot of her self-portraits. Yes, and she also was pre-med when that happened. So she went from being a doctor to being a painter. Yeah, And um, growing up, she always really wanted to be a doctor, and she just mm-hmm. wanted to do her art as a side, you know, just a side hobby or a side mm-hmm. hustle. We were talking about how a lot of these women are kind of kept in their husband's shadow. Mm-hmm. And that was 100% the case uh, with Frida Kahlo. It started when she was alive. She was known as uh, 
Diego Rivera's, Rivera's wife. wife. Yes. And then after her death, it swapped. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so he became known as Frito Kahlo's husband. Yeah. And so it's very interesting that there was just this focal shift. But her work was recognized. Mm-hmm. Um, it was in the Louvre. And it was also featured, I want to say, in either uh, New York or Philadelphia as well. So her work was out there. Her name was out there. But she was always just kind of tagged on to his. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, even when um, they first met, he was already a very renowned artist in his Mm -hmm. own right. Which is interesting because they probably had the most rocky of relationships out of all of the people that we have talked about so far yeah definitely both interesting and turbulent yes the fact that they were married twice to each other Mm -hmm. they got divorced after i believe a year into their first marriage and then no they got divorced and then like a year later they got yes there we go so it is intriguing that they remarried each other, but yet it is well known that they still had affairs, affairs. on both sides. Yes. Yeah. Actually, there was probably the most, um, I guess, controversial of Diego's affairs was actually happened with Frida Kahlo's own sister. Yes. Yeah. Um, I believe that might have been the one that happened before the divorce, I think, but I'm not 100% on that one. And um, I do believe that um, Frida Kahlo's, you know, I guess her extramarital affairs sort of came as a response to his. Um, mm-hmm. She would kind of go out of her way to um, sleep with, you know, all the women that he slept with. Yep. Just despite him. Um, which has also made her a um, LGBTQ icon, icon as oh, well. Yeah. Actually, yeah, the, I, th- I think that was par- partially, you know, one of the main factors that pushed her popularity. Yes. A lot. In terms of media, there's been a lot of biopics. Mm-hmm. The one that is most recent um, is she was featured, I feel, more than just a background character in the popular uh, movie Coco from Pixar. But she also had a very well done biopic in 2002 of the name Frida. Yeah, she was portrayed by... Um... Mexican actress Salma Hayek and uh, her niece Frida Kahlo's niece was so impressed with the betrayal that she actually gave um, Salma Hayek uh, one of um, Kahlo's necklaces. Yes and she also Frida Kahlo's niece was also part of the production team they consulted her and she provided a lot of the background content um that hadn't really been seen in a lot of the other films so that was really great another interesting fact about frida is that they actually went through the footage after it was filmed and they recolored it frame by frame so that it would better match the aesthetic of frida's art And so they took it and they reduced it to, I believe it was a 2K resolution, and they went through and they recolored every frame, which is why, if you watch the movie, it doesn't look quite right. And that is the feel that Frida's work was always striving towards. 
Her work was not there to make you feel happy. It was there to make you think and to make you feel slightly uncomfortable. Yeah. As, you know, she would, you know, famously say, her work was not a reflection of the imagination or fantasy. It very much was a reflection of her own reality. Yes. And her own reality was very dark in a lot of ways yeah she was in constant pain after that in and out of hospitals yes and she wasn't ever able to quite move the same way again and Mm -hmm. it really it really did affect a lot of what she did there are images of her where she's in the hospital bed and she had asked her dad for some paints while she was in the hospital, but her mom took it one step forward and actually put a mirror on the ceiling of the hospital so she could do these self-portraits. And so there's instances where she's in a brace and she's got the paints propped up on the brace and there's this apparatus so she can get to the canvas and she's just painting off her stomach, but you can see her looking up at the ceiling and that's what she's looking at is there's a mirror So her family was very supportive of all of her endeavors, which is amazing because a lot of artists, they are told, go get a real job or, you know, do something with your life. And that's not something that has become just a common phrase in our time. It's been going on for years. And her father, I believe, was also an artist. So I feel like that really just helps with her ability to create all of these things she to my knowledge never even went to art school I believe she was all just self-taught or taught by her um, father so the fact that not even two years after the accident she was already getting some things featured and her name was getting out there um, is quite incredible and all of these women that we've you know talked about have just done incredible things with their lives that even affect us till this very day it's interesting to see people who were able to create their own legacy i think it's so important to celebrate these people and to acknowledge what they've done so that hopefully we can strive to do the same and even improve on a lot of you know, the work that they did during their lives as well. All right, well, thank you for joining us for our More Than Books podcast, episode 41. This is Sierra Whitfield and Emily Sutherland signing off.